Are you a Bitcoin bull? Have you gone and bought some crypto? Uh, are you a mad trader? Are you a crypto utopian who thinks it's going to change the world? Have you mortgaged your house to buy some Ethereum? Or does it all seem a little bit peculiar to you and you've heard about it but don't really quite grok to how it's going to change the world, if it is at all? Today's show is for you, whichever camp you fall in. Mark Carnegie is the founding partner of Carnegie & Company, which is a, a, a venture capital uh, company in Australia. He's basically just a very, very rich, smart guy <laughs> about investments and finance and how the future is going to unfold. And he's got a very, very well-proven track record of understanding the trends that are evolving, both in finance and the the broader economy and society and culture. And he's got some interesting ideas about where we're headed, um, not just in terms of cryptocurrency, but in terms of virtual reality and metaverses and all this kind of stuff. So I, I wanted to talk to him about about Bitcoin. I think I'll do a, a number of different episodes here, one with a true crypto evangelist and perhaps one with a, a crypto skeptic. Um, but I think Mark sits well in the in the middle like his investment company does offer a digital assets fund to its super wealthy uh, investors and he's playing in this space he understands this space he's not at all a knee-jerk old dinosaur who doesn't get any of this stuff but he also has a rather tempered attitude towards bitcoin itself as you will hear so i hope that this conversation which even left my head reeling sometimes is not too dense. I mean, this is a conversation that we're all going to have to get our heads around in one way or another in the next few years. Things are changing so quickly in the crypto space that it's worth understanding this stuff to whatever extent you can. And it's worth understanding it from someone who has his feet firmly placed in the conventional, old school, traditional financial system, but is also aware of everything that's going on in crypto. So that's Mark for you. Uh, he has an incredibly illustrious career. He was he has a he went to Oxford University, went to Melbourne University. He was actually the, the treasurer of the Oxford Union, uh, and he's advised companies like Qantas and Coles and Westfield, all of these huge companies. He's an entrepreneur. He's an investor. He's a corporate advisor. I hope you can get your head around the one and only Mark Carnegie. You're an underprivileged kid would not be true. You come no. from from uh, child of privilege. From literally, you know what Alexandria Ocasio Cortez wants to. She, you're one of the people who she wants to uh, to tax yeah. in her tax exactly. dress. Um, what what's your provenance? Yeah, so Western District mother, then classic sort of um, entitled education, Geelong Grammar School, uh, Melbourne University, Trinity College, and then Oxford and beyond. Um, and I think that the only thing I've ever done that uh, could be sort of cutting against the grain was that a, about a decade ago, I was one of the people who was on the vanguard that said that with the changes to the structure of economic reality now, as we move from Moore's law to Metcalfe's law, businesses cascaded to winner take all, and therefore the economic rents of capitalism were just inexorably going to grow more unequal and we needed to do something in anticipation of that um, and I don't think the way to do that is to wear a tax the rich 
um, very, very expensive dress to a Met Gala. I think it's to go to a tax summit and actually say we need to do something about the loopholes that mean that the tax system doesn't work particularly well. What does it mean to move from Moore's Law to Metcalfe's Law? Remind us of the two laws. Yeah, sorry. Moore's Law was this idea that the cost of semiconductors was going to halve every year. And so, and as you've seen it, it's been going since the early 70s where just the power of computers is just gets inexorably stronger. But for a whole series of reasons to do with that particular wave of capitalism, things didn't push into the direction of monopolies. They tended to mean that consumers got a really, really good deal. Lots of new entrants came up in with new sets of technologies and things went um, well for capitalism at that stage. Then Metcalfe's law was a law about the value of a network that said one person with a fax machine is worth nothing, two people with a fax machine is worth something. By the time you get everyone to have a fax machine, then the value of fax machines has gone massively up because you can send anywhere to anywhere. And then nobody has fax machines anymore except for doctor's offices. So unless you're sending your hernia script in, there's no use. Exactly. And so the answer is you can always get trapped in a sort of legacy technology, but Google, um, because it has access to your data, it's got better search terms, it's got better ability to address ads, same with Um, Spotify, same with Instagram and all of those. You're on Instagram because somebody else is on Instagram and your network is, and your ability to extract monopoly rents looks much more like late 19th century capitalism than mid-20th century capitalism. And so... And is that because the barriers to entry are so high since the very thing that makes Google and Facebook so good at what they do is the fact that they have this massive treasure trove of data that they've taken from all of the people who are in the network. In other words, the, the size, the scale of what they've yeah. already got is an impediment. It's, it's, it's not so much because capital's come down. It's just that once you've got a network established, you can just ride that for a long, long time. And you can't conceive of a change to the tech that is going to supplant Google or Facebook because it's all software in the way that the fax machine got wiped out by the printer and and the internet. Can't the you know can't the tech optimist bro say yeah that's fine now but I mean look at MySpace and look at these other things who thought that they were dominant because they were the number one uh, at the end of the day if Facebook doesn't keep up with consumer demand then some other social network is going to gradually take its place or quickly so take I think, its place. I mean. I bifurcate my answer there. There were two things, which is if you go back to Buffett and Munger and what they say, they say absolutely surfing those waves has been an inherent part of capitalism. If you take a company like NCR, it got to ride the wave for however long, then IBM, then Microsoft. And they say, look, at one thing that's happened is the clock speed of capitalism has has gone up and therefore the ability to ride the way for a long, long time has gone down over time because you've just had technology changing. Um, My view is that the structure of current day capitalism, but for a big but, um, means that these guys, by virtue of being software networks and human being networks and essentially holding your kids and everyone else hostage, they can run it. Um, as a monopoly or as an oligopoly on our brains for longer than people um, think at far greater cost to society. The but is I'm 
increasingly of the view that whilst I said when I went into the whole crypto thing, it was interesting, but I wasn't convinced the use case was actually going to be societally productive. I have to say, and it might be just confirmation bias, um, I do see the crypto guys genuinely coming after these network businesses and finding some way to rip a huge amount of the value of the network and put it back in the hands of consumers. So if I'm an optimist, I'm an optimist as a result of having jumped into the crypto world and um, swum around in it for a while. Mm, That's interesting. Let's get back to how exactly you would get you would extract uh, the the rents and the super profits from these networked companies like Google and Facebook by using uh, crypto technology. I'll park that for a second. I just want to come back to you. So when you were growing up your rich privileged life and going to these elite colleges and ending up at Oxford and so on, what did you want to, what do you, what were you interested in? like what what did you want to do with your life? So I've told this story. I always wanted to be Jacques Cousteau. I wanted to Mm. be a research marine biologist. That was what was of interest to me. But I arrived my first week at um, Melbourne University and met a guy called Andrew Gibbons who ended up being a professor um, at Flinders University in South Australia. And I just realised it's a bit like when you play somebody at tennis and you're not very good and they are an elite level player. It doesn't matter how long you train, you're just not going to be able to be competitive with them and maybe it's never happened to you but you can feel when you top out in terms of your <laughs> cognitive wiring sure right? has second you know second year um, university maths and I started to really really struggle with it and I just looked at this guy and said there's absolutely no way that I'm ever going to catch him in terms of the quality of my contribution to research science so I continued to do it and I was passionate about it but I realised I had to rebadge, and then I went off to do law at Oxford and um, and started interning in um, investment banks, and that's where I went. Now I wanted to be in venture capital at that stage, but I ended up being in private equity just because that's how the world worked. And it's really been in the last decade that I've come back to venture, which is a passion for me. Mm. Why? Why is it a passion? I just like playing the attacker hand um, far more than the defender hand. I just yeah, like right. the whole idea that you know imagination and energy is going to be more rewarded than the fact that you've got an incumbent competitive advantage. What is crypto? Basically, you can bookend it in two different ways. Yeah, the the minimalist case is that this is this is something like a railroad. It's just another form of transportation and all the people that are investing in crypto are going to basically be like the early days of the railroad industry where nobody ever made a, a dollar and everything went broke yeah and yes the society is going to be changed a little about that but if you want to be an investor yeah You need to be an investor in thinking about where the railroad sidings are and buy the real estate and don't be sitting there and having anything to do with doing the railroads because it's just going to be a disaster, yeah? And Mm -hmm. if you listen to people and they say really all the values in blockchain, that's what I call the minimalist case, which is it's important, it's going to change the technology of delivery of information and how it goes around the world, yeah? Then... 
that's the minimalist case. And what I said was, in, if if I spend my limited capital allocation on crypto and lose it all, and I've been able to find what you know a railroad siding at an important junction and invest in that, then I'm not sure over the long term what I got out of the railroad siding isn't going to be worth more than what I lost in my crypto stuff. So that was, given how sceptical I was about the space, really how I started on it. Yeah, And I know this is tangential because I'm starting as an investor thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Then the maximalist case yeah, um, is wildly different to that. The maximalist case basically says that Tim Berners-Lee was Gutenberg for our um, Eon. So he, when he came up with HTML, came up with something that is like the Gutenberg press that reduced the cost of the the transcribing or the moving of a unit of um, information down by a thousand X, a million X, but to a fraction of where it was before. And if you think about what Gutenberg did, that was basically what he was able to do, which is move from scribes to be able to reduce the cost of the transmission of a piece of information um, to a fraction of what it was before. The crypto guys say when Satoshi um, wrote the white paper, yeah, a guy, uh, which seems pretty clear to me having re- read around it, but it's never admitted, is a guy called Hal Finney um, wrote this white paper about why um, Bitcoin was going to work. And there's a phrase that they use in terms of overcoming a problem about how to hack an, a network. It's the something generals or the um, problem that he found the solution to that. Um, he he did for this particular revolution what Luther did when he nailed his 99 theses to the cathedral wall. He said, let's reimagine the world. Yeah. So, and triggered just a huge number of things that are going on. So minimalist is, this is a technological wave. It's happened three, four, five, seven times in our generation. It, it's going to be interesting. It's a bubble. It's going to burst. You need to figure it out because some there's going to be winners and losers. And the maximalist case is this is a epoch-making societal change as a result of the fact that trust, which underlies all market economies and all network economies, is going to be fundamentally reimagined as a consequence of how crypto is setting about remaking the world. So it's a fair range between minimalism and maximalism, mate. It's a gigantic range. I mean, when you listen to some of the tech techno-utopians, uh, you know, they're talking about uh, you know, I, I heard uh, I heard Balaji Srinivasan on Sam Harris's podcast, uh, who founded Coinbase, one of the big, biggest um, cryptocurrency exchanges, and he thinks that the United States of America won't exist in within the next few decades mm-hmm. as a result of crypto uh, you know, disruptions. Um, let's start though with your most modest uh, version of what crypto is going to do. In that railroad analogy, what are the railroad sightings? Um, I'm still trying to figure out what the railroad <laughs> sightings are at the moment, but I think you've got to say to yourself, let, if, if you think about what the people who were writing the early white papers around Satoshi were writing, they were And just to clarify, if people don't know, Satoshi is the creator of Bitcoin and the founder of yep. all of this. It's a pseudonym. Um, yep. 
um, he, so what they said was, look, the GFC came and go, went and basically some hedge fund guys and some rich bankers, yeah, got the government to socialize the losses whilst they'd been, um, capital, you know, making capitalism out of the profits for 10 years. Yeah. The yeah? GFC what, is the global financial crisis. It's an sorry. Aussie year. That's, that's all right. About half my listeners are in the States. So, uh, right. yep. Um, and so what they said was, how's this fair? What's gone on? We don't like this. They're printing money in a way that can't be good. And hence the reason for Bitcoin. But what they also said was, look, we build a whole lot of these important companies and by virtue of Met, Metcalfe's law, this idea that the network's going to cons- cascade to monopoly, the rents went to a whole lot of scumbag capitalists, whereas it should have gone to the people who who created what's called the MVP, the minimum viable product, and the early adopters, the people who understood what the tech was going to get used for and go ahead and do it. And there shouldn't be a bright line world where the only way to make that work is either via traditional capitalism, which is a rigged game, or you have to hand it all back to create a sort of socialist world like Wikipedia or Linux and stuff like that. We want to create something else that's a more flexible way to allocate the economic rents of capitalism. And so they sat there and said, what are the sorts of things that we can go and do set about doing? And the first thing they said is just payments architecture and the architecture of the financial system makes absolutely no sense. It only works by virtue of this socialized guarantee from the government to the banks, yeah, who charge mm. a ton for that guarantee and went on. And so that was where Vitalik just ended up being an absolute magician and creating that cult of personality around him when he invented Ethereum, yeah? So I think the the minimalist case, as I say to people, is, and these are lots of words, so it's assuming a fair bit of knowledge about this area, but there's two young guys who are Collison brothers, are young guys who are running a business in America called Stripe. And so what I say to people is there's essentially what the crypto guys are calling TradFi or NeFi, Neanderthal finance is one bucket, <laughs> yeah? So if you think NeFi probably res- is responsible and all of the parasitic industries of that being, you know, auditors, etc., yeah, to try and do that because you've got to have this sort of embedded trust and everybody checking each other because you don't have the benefit of smart contracts. Yeah, wait, like okay, you, we're, we're so, losing so, people who aren't as up, up on this as, as we are. So let's just pause for, for a moment because I love, I love Nephi as a way of talking about Neanderthal finance. But if people are confused, that's, you're basically referring to all of financial institutions that currently exist that aren't crypto, exactly. right? Basically, so the, DeFi, the crypto guys, yeah, yeah, yeah so just to be clear, right, what the... What the crypto guys say, yeah, is that all of the existing financial in- infrastructure is a fax machine. Yeah. All of it, it. right? It. And that represents, let's say, 6 to 7% of global GDP, yeah? And the parasitic industries on it, yeah, represent another 7 to 8% of GDP. And Got it. They just say your ass is grass 
And I think we need to explain and articulate what the thinking here is, because a large number of people, I mean, everyone's heard of Bitcoin, and I think people have heard of blockchains, and people have probably heard of Ethereum, and maybe even decentralized finance. But the extent of many people's understanding, I mean, when I just told, I was just picking up the kids from my mum's place, and I told her that I was talking to you and about crypto, and she said, oh, I hope it's not to invest. Like, from her perspective... Bitcoin is a speculative bubble that has no value and will never have any value and is just something that crazy wonks are, are working on in their computer basements and they're either making a killing or they're, make, or they're you know, it's gambling, basically. Round out the picture of the potential of blockchain technology in a, in a practical way and how it might impact the future. Yeah. So just to understand your mum, this is the point about the raw search test. You hear yeah. a couple of things. You go, I'm too old to worry about this. I've seen bubbles come and go, kabang. And Bitcoin, which we could spend a whole podcast on, is essentially a piece of geopolitical game theory and not attached to the rest of crypto except tangentially. So just in your head, you've got to realise Bitcoin's geopolitical game theory. It's the idea that there is and should be uh, digital gold, we should go back on the gold standard, but the gold standard is going to be the Bitcoin gold standard, not the other one. It's it, it's an interesting conversation. It's a sideshow. The second conversation, which is the argument that says all of the existing payments infrastructure, that is how banks transfer money between different places and how they transfer it around the world from different countries is... Um, as antiquated as the fax machine, yeah, is clearly true in that there is absolutely no reason when a bank deposit is only a line of computer code why it costs anything to move it from A to B. Yeah. Just, it's as That's simple just as that. just a toll because they can charge a toll. And because of the history and the trust networks and the regulatory compliance and nobody really knows and how does it work, what are re, you know, repos and re, reverse repos and what's BAL2 and BAL3. And I mean, if you go and look at traditional finance and try and dig, yeah, it is absolutely terrifying what happens. And this is a big part of what the attack on Nephi is, which is, guys, you say crypto is just rubbish, but the Fed is even more rubbish. If people stop to understand about the balance sheet of the Fed and the federal government and how that works and how crazy that is, you would realise that um, the traditional finance system in the world after the GFC and now after the corona intervention is absolutely fundamentally broken. But for crypto to work and change the world, you don't even need to believe that. You just need to believe that a whole lot of people are charging monopoly rents for something that should cost zero. And I don't know when was the last time you tried to move money from here to another country, yeah, mm. and sign up to the SWIFT network or anything. But it is absolutely crazy. Oh, it's ludicrous. And yeah, it is amazing. I mean, I lived in the States for, for 12 years up until a few years ago. And so uh, I'm very familiar with with getting money back and forth. And, you know, when I first started, it was, you know, it would take, you'd have to physically go in and you'd have to sign things and it took weeks and, and all that. Uh, and that was 
fairly recently. That was 20 years ago. Um, well, 15 years ago. Uh, now on an app, I can. It, it's very easy to initiate, but behind the scenes, all of those things are still happening and those fees are still being paid and mm. still whirring away like ancient old cogs. Mm. Of course, in theory, crypto solves that because I can just transfer. I mean, the cryptocurrency doesn't care where I am, doesn't know where I am. I can take it in and you know, transfer it in and out of a fiat currency however I want. But the great challenge is what cryptocurrency am i using that isn't so volatile that it loses its utility as a store of value but if you know you know the answer to that which is you've now got every sort of stable coin available so you can go and send all sorts and just explain what a stable coin is so stable coin is basically a cryptocurrency can be anything you can back it with an ounce of gold you can back it with a swiss franc predictably because the world's reserve currency at the moment is US dollars, the most interesting ones and the ones that are currently the default are all US dollar stable coins. So if you want to send somebody US dollars from X to Y, you can do that in a US dollar stable coin. Right, now, but isn't isn't this a bit of a cop-out? Because you know, you're touting the benefits, the, the smooth, liquid, no-fee benefits of crypto, but you only achieve the lack of volatility by piggybacking on the existing fiat infrastructure. If it was to replace the US dollar and you were to abolish the Fed and everything was going to evolve into this utopian uh, vision of the crypto bros, presumably US DT But this is where I anything. just think, but this is where I just so profoundly disagree with the whole Bitcoin argument, which is, you know, this, the whole idea that you're going to reintroduce the gold standard effectively, right, whether it's Bitcoin or a gold stable, yeah, um, seems to me to be something that I don't want to do. I want to provide some amount of monetary policy flexibility because I do believe Keynes was right. And the Mm. whole idea that you don't have the ability to use the central bank or the taxing power of the economy to find some way to stabilise um, cycles is just crazy. I think the problem about it is, to use Buffett and Munger's line, what the what the wise man does at the beginning, the fool does at the end. And what's going to be seen in history is that Jerome Powell and the European Central Bank at the moment are some sort of multi-headed reincarnation of John Law. Now, I know the issues with central banking are... A sideshow to crypto and what i'd say to you is crypto is going to work with or without bitcoin yeah in my view and there's guys who are coming out with all sorts of reserve currencies at the moment josh you know you've got people who are willing to do it on a trade a climate a, a ton of carbon at the moment right yeah a commitment to there's just all sorts of things so what's the reserve currency how it's going to fit you think about a different way which is the swiss sit there and say actually we're going to put 20 percent of our foreign exchange reserves into bitcoin this game is over yeah the, yeah the swiss you mean do if they as, do that they haven't yeah, done that no, no, but I'm saying, assume right. they do that or yeah. Singapore does that or any country that's what I call a whitelist country for tax purposes turns around and says, no, nah, this is a real part of our overseas, you know, overall portfolio reserve currency. This is Katie by the door. But mm. I don't, I think that is a, you know, way that it plays. I personally think unlikely, I just, don't like a whole series of the characteristics with Bitcoin being so strapped to proof of um, proof of work, and mm. I just feel like people think it's icky. But I think, and I'll give you another example, which is: Does 
crypto do something, yes or no? Another example is Ian Love, who's, you know, I'm in a partnership with in a fund, and admittedly he's an Ethereum maximalist, but he had, um, he supports a charity, an orphanage in Burma. And the generals come in, stage the coup, the whole system gets shut down. He's got to pay the local people to keep the whole thing alive during the meltdown. Yeah. He was trying every single way. He wasn't sitting there and being a crypto guy to do it. Yeah. But the only way that he could get it done was basically Bitcoin into his guy's uh, mobile wallet. The guy sat in a coffee shop in Rangoon and got um, Bitcoin for local currency while the whole rest of the payment system in Burma was shut down. Yeah. So I think people get that. I think people can understand that there will be a a resilience in sort of disaggregated uh, online systems that will make them impervious to the whims of generals and coups and nation states and so on. Uh, Can you articulate some more ways in which there might be practical uses from, like, why don't we just say, why don't we just start with what is decentralized finance? Yeah, the problem I have with DeFi, right, and the whole of that area is it, you know, I'm in it because I get it, right? But well, what is much, it? Uh, <laughs> again, we're, we're back to a sort of raw satch test. It, it basically says, well, you can attack the payment system, which is what we were talking about before. And now let's attack a different part of it, which is you put your money on deposit, you pay all these fees, you'll get anywhere between a sort of headline rate of 1% to 2%. But by the time you've included all the other fees, you probably earn on $100 minus $1 to $3 a year. Yeah? Mm. Bank fees, this fee, the other fee. Yeah? Yep. And then go and try and borrow money on your credit card, yeah, or something else other than a first mortgage on your house, yeah, you probably charge 7, 8, 9, 10%, yeah? Yeah. So whether you think gross spreads are 5% or 10%, yeah, and they trick them all up that says, no, 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 the gross spreads are only 2 to 3%. But the price at which you, the individual, get to earn money by sticking it in the bank, net of all the hidden fees, and the price at which you borrow it by the time you've included your mortgage insurance and a whole series of things, there's a monster amount of difference between putting it into the system and taking it out. Yeah? Yep. And they make exactly the same point, which is if we clean out the middleman, then you can borrow at a lower rate, yeah? And you can lend at a higher rate and everybody other than the bankers makes off well. And is part of the innovation that you don't also don't have to borrow from some central institution like a bank, you can borrow, your blockchain enables you to borrow from anyone, from multiple parties. There's no trust necessarily required. You don't need a middleman like a banker to say, I'm keeping your money safe and I'm going to make sure that the repayments are on time because... You mentioned smart contracts earlier, but as I understand it, a smart contract will be able to include triggers in it that just make things happen and verify things in an automatic way so that I don't have to, I don't need a bank to be keeping an eye on whether or not I'm paying my mortgage repayments on time. It'll just happen. So yeah, I'm trying to grope towards something that someone who who isn't familiar with these kinds of terms can 
can visualize it. Okay, but think about running the world. Well, it's just assume that, yeah, the problem here, Josh, is the. I don't want people to be feeling like this is where the proponents claim it is, yeah, in that I think the hype has run way ahead of the reality. Yeah. Right, right. So the theory is you don't get what you should when you deposit money somewhere. You don't borrow other than in mortgages at a low enough rate. Um when you need the money and if the market actually finds some way to connect the lenders with the borrowers the world will be a better place right. that's the and theory. that's just lending and borrowing then you think about solicitors and absolutely you know, all of this like i've just that's what i call the seven then, to eight percent of gdp all right of that so there's all this right. money they're all these they're yep. all these essentially toll collectors who have yep. to enforce trust in our old antiquated system i need a solicitor yep. i need to pay him just to look over yep. the things you know the exact timing of the purchase has to be physically coordinated and all the between rubbish. my solicitor and the buyer's agent and the real estate agent and the yep. bank and the you know it's going to happen at precisely this point in time yep. and someone has to physically press a button all of that could be all automated into a decentralized network that that yep. runs humming along in the background sort of flawlessly yep. and I don't have to pay anyone for all of yep. those toll points. Exactly. And also, I mean, again, it'll take up the whole possibility to re-engineer how a set of incentives work in a smart contract and get things going. There's the promise. But what I'd say to you about when people listen to this and they go, God, I heard Mark Carnegie say DeFi was really good. I'm going to go and stake my crypto, right? You just need to realize that that in the same way as buying a whole lot of tokens, your mother's right, because there are just a whole lot of scammers and scumbags out there trying to buy and sell tokens. So too in DeFi, right? There's protocol risk. There's a whole lot of complexity, etc. And because a huge amount of what matters is getting a deep enough liquidity pool to have that whole network effect work in pools of capital here at the moment. There are a whole lot of sort of coins that are given effectively as incentives to get you onto pools. And you really, really need to know your way around. You know, a whole lot of the bonus tokens you get for um, putting money in a DeFi pool at the moment, there's a circularity and there's a bubble element of it. This is where Nick Taleb, the black swan guy, who's a prominent this is all rubbish and mm. nobody should be anywhere near, says it's just a Ponzi scheme. And I think that um, I just don't want to leave people with a view that's, that the promise of crypto in DeFi is actually close to the reality. I can see it coming and there's parts of the payment rails that are working and stuff like that, but the hype is 10x the reality in my view. I mean, Nicholas Taleb doesn't just think that DeFi is overblown. He thinks the whole thing is overblown, right? Including Bitcoin and Ethereum and everything. And to his credit, he was pretty prescient about the global financial crisis before that happened uh, as well. The the question is... But the problem about... I mean, I think Nick's, you know, both a very difficult guy and also (laughs) a very, very clever man. Yeah, Um, clever man. But the problem is, you, as somebody did about Bitcoin, you use his best arguments against him, which is, so again, you know, jargon phrases, but he has this phrase, Lindy, which is the 
the longer a Broadway production's on, the longer it's likely to continue to be on. That is, the longer something's been used in some way, the longer it's likely to get get used. And he connects it to this other idea, which is some systems are fragile. They're just designed so that when you hit them hard, out of nowhere, they smash, yeah? And some systems are anti-fragile. That is, the more you hit them, the stronger they come back. Mm. And every time one of these things happens in the crypto world and it's like crypto winter, it's here, it's all going away again, and then it bounces back from there, then I would be using his arguments about anti-fragile back against him. I think Mm. there are elements of this um, that just feel really, really anti-fragile to me. If you think about the three or four crypto winters, which is what they use as the phrase to deal with their bear markets, because a typical bear market is probably 20 to 30%, and a typical bear market for crypto is somewhere between 60 and 80%. So um, the thing just comes back stronger. Let me stay for a moment on the Ponzi scheme question before we Mm -hmm. get into that stuff too deep the the criticism that this is all just a ponzi scheme strikes me Mm -hmm. as a little bit odd because i mean you were just saying earlier that the whole financial system as we saw in the global financial crisis is screwy i mean it it's out of whack the whole thing is propped up by i mean even who's the brilliant uh, Israeli uh, philosopher and writer who wrote *Sapiens* and um, no, yeah, Yuval, Yuval Harari. Yuval, no, Harari. I mean, he makes the point that you know the whole concept of money is just an idea. The whole thing mm. is essentially a Ponzi scheme. The the fact that we trust in fiat currencies is a Ponzi scheme as well. But as long as everybody believes, that's okay. The moment everybody stopped believing in the US dollar, the US dollar would cease to have any value. Isn't can't the same claim be made of of cryptocurrencies and I don't personally think so I'd like to be able to say that but I think the taxing power of the state yeah and the expropriation ability and the use of force stapled to um, a sort of mandated currency looks very very different to bitcoin bitcoin's argument is well, where gold there's only limited amounts of them the ponzi schemes um, are the Ponzi scheme argument to me is much more legitimate for Bitcoin created out of nowhere. Well, then yeah. is gold a Ponzi scheme? I think gold is Lindy. Yeah, it's basically there because it's an embedded set of things, which is it's got value as a historical artifact for jewelry. Yeah, so it's got a use value there. Mm. It's got a use value as an industrial catalyst at some level or other. Yeah, so. You know, it's why palladium's gone absolutely mental because they've ended up investing in that because they always said palladium was going to be cheaper than platinum and gold. So it's got that. And then it's got a discount rate because of the store of value that means that it should, in all circumstances, trade at a very low discount rate. So there's a bundle of things that I think gold has that Bitcoin doesn't. That Now, I think those values are probably, you know, somewhere between half to two thirds of the market value of gold, but it's still, and I'd have to take you into sort of warrant pricing stuff um, to make the argument that that gold, I think, wins compared to Bitcoin. Now, on a retail basis, Bitcoin 
beats gold because the frictional drag of owning really large slices of gold as part of an investment portfolio requires storage, insurance, and a whole series of other things. And so Bitcoin doesn't have any of that. If you can set the wallet up and not lose your keys and stuff like that, you can stake it for 3 or 4% in a way that gold doesn't. Yeah, mm. can't be done. But again, way too much for a podcast. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's just hard. I, I take all of those points about what make gold, you know, a, a more viable asset than yeah. Bitcoin. But I do, something just doesn't drive for me about like if, Let's take the maximalist. But the, you, I think you're making another case, which is, has the Fed and the ECB broken fiat like John Law broke the the central bank or the whole idea of the reputation of France as a well, I mean, I'm, I'm, pay, I'm that not even saying, to me, yeah, that, that saying to me is to the case. That, I think it's clear that it's happened, right? Right. So right. To me, my argument to the guys who are like, Crypto's a Ponzi is no, the Fed broke fiat. When it sat there and did what it did through, in, through this particular thing, it will never be able to get its feet back underneath it. Yeah. Do you mean because it's, of the response to the financial crisis? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you've got now structural deficits as far as you, the eye can see. You're going to have to find some way to collapse the pretense that um, the two balance sheets are separate. You just can't see it. Sorry, what are the back. two balance sheets? The Fed's balance sheet and the government's balance sheet. And right, there's this sort of fiction that says they're not together. Yeah, yeah? and yeah. that's the way central banking works. So yeah. back to why you can't be making the case for crypto in America or in Australia or countries like that, which is the taxing power of the state and the ultimate repository of the use of force. Yeah, is with the state, and that is the reason why fiat currency has more value yeah now again we're down more rabbit holes but the gold's gulch maximalists say that crypto has allowed the world to rewire from sort of horizontal cycles which are countries to vertical slices which are interest groups and that's broadly the argument balaji makes about why he thinks you're going to be able to create a community online, yeah, and then run a reverse auction amongst the states of the United Nations to pick those people up and move them. And when I heard that the first time round, I just thought, dude, you really have gone too far this time. Until <laughs> yeah, just that, explain it, that to people who haven't haven't heard yeah, that. Just How me, does, yeah, yeah, sorry. Let me, okay, yeah. I think the easier way to get it is that story about how some. California congressman, when Musk said he, Elon Musk said he was going to move up and move from California to Texas, said goodbye and good riddance. Yeah, missing the point that he was a huge, huge taxpayer in mm. California, both personally and with Tesla. And the mayor of Miami saw that, got a tweet from somebody else that said, "Hey, we're getting run out of California," um, and he said, "Well, how can we help you?" And so this mayor of Miami sent this, you know, what's a sort of venture capital buzzword, which is how can I help you? Um, and he managed to get $28 billion of crypto investment and business moved from California to Florida on the strength of 200 tweets. So it wasn't a country thing, but it mm. was 
the American system, where states are a really, really important thing, where they just picked up and moved a ton of crypto businesses over there. And the same way as things are happening in Wyoming at the moment, crypto-friendly regulation is taking a huge chunk of capital and moving into those jurisdictions and moving away from the places that are hostile to them. Right, but you've always had rich people and businesses cherry-picking their jurisdictions for the most favourable outcomes. That's why Apple is headquartered in Ireland instead of in the United States. What's the difference? So two different things, which is Apple has a whole series of international tax treaties, which were a farce, where Janet Yellen you know, managed to do very quickly what nobody else had done, which is put in place global minimum tax rules for the G7. So I think the role of Ireland was a historical oddity to do with trying to get its GDP up when it joined the EU. And I think the opportunity to cherry pick low tax jurisdictions is, you know, very close to finished at the moment. Um, I think that, yes, people have moved historically to minimise tax, no doubt about that. But I think that what they've tended to do is have passive capital rather than ideas. And the argument of the crypto maximalists is that we're building this new society, we're building these new industries, and the crypto-friendly jurisdictions will get the benefit of that. Yeah. Um, now, you can say, well, look at all the things that happened about the American car industry where tax incentives moved people from um, state to state. So there's perhaps not as much difference as some of the people would claim a, a resulted with this. But the regulatory environment as opposed to the tax environment is a huge, huge component of what's going to actually determine where people want to go in crypto. So you've got two levers, not just the tax lever, but the are we friendly to you lever that's going to have an impact. And despite whatever scepticism there may be towards Bitcoin being a new gold and holding its store of value and increasing indefinitely, you're very bullish on Ethereum. Explain the difference and why yeah. you favour them differently. Well, so, I mean, we need to get to why I think there is actually a genuine surviving use case, right, which is going to take us further down the rabbit hole. Yeah. So just... What I want to do is, so Bitcoin either works or doesn't work on the basis that it's a, a winner in a piece of geopolitical game theory where the Chinese want to supplant America as the world's reserve currency. America wants to keep being the reserve currency. They both hate Bitcoin. The theory is that they hate Bitcoin less than they hate the idea for America of giving up the position as the world's reserve currency and the Chinese hate Bitcoin less than the opportunity to supplant America as the reserve currency. Balaji and Naval both make the case um, that India and a whole series of the non-aligned nations should step in there at the moment, be, embrace Bitcoin. And as I said to you, you, you can see the flywheel going where Bitcoin strengthens crypto strengthens and the crypto-friendly jurisdictions work. As I've said before, that is the sort of maximalist, maximalist that we're going to sign up to crypto and crypto is going to have a gold standard and the gold standard is going to be Bitcoin. Ethereum just sits at the core of the people who are trying to make this case about the existing financial system being rubbish, Yeah, who mm. say... 
<clears throat> we don't like swift network we don't like payments we don't like paying five to ten point gross points of spread to the banks we want to change that and what i say is that because vitalik was able to use all of the decision logic that hal finney did with satoshi you know with the white paper and then add this ability to take third party information and move it on the block yeah he pre provided just a whole lot more of how you could make the thing work and it was functional now ethereum's got all sorts of problems as a practical um payment system we all know how slow it is it's expensive etc a fortune to use yeah exactly and that's why all these level two protocols are getting built on the strength of um, ethereum and ethereum still could be inflationary whereas that's never going to happen bitcoin and stuff like that but where i like it is that he's got in my head a coding group that are religious nuts for ethereum yeah which are the only group of people who in my head are as smart as the Collisons at Stripe. And they're passionate about making sure that with all of the need for level two and level three protocols to run on Ethereum, that Ethereum itself is going to stay true to what I call the sort of rebel alliance mentality. And what you can do with that whether you use it for a US dollar stablecoin, an Australian dollar stablecoin, a ton of carbon reduction, CO2 reduction, or Bitcoin, doesn't really matter. So I just feel like for all of the societally productive stuff and for a view that says the taxing power of the state will at some level remain intact, Ethereum is the ground zero of what's going to end up being good in crypto. And in that world, if it does revolutionize how we not just exchange money with each other, but invest our money and use legal services and track carbon emissions and all of these different things that a blockchain might be able to do, is it not inevitable that Bitcoin would become the obvious store of value for all of that activity? I suppose that's what the, the Bitcoin bulls assume. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and they're called HODL, just buy Bitcoin and hold on for D-Life. I can see a world where everything else happens and the dollar, um, a dollar stable works. I can see a world where all of it happens and an RMB stable works. I can see a state of the world where a gold stable works. I can see where something that's the equivalent of FDR, a strategic drawing right works. I can see how a ton of carbon emission works. So there's 50 or 60 contenders for the um, reserve currency, um, in my view, none of which, the decision about which has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not the crypto ecosystem survives. Um, and what do, you, what do you make of all of these other, I mean, in addition to Ethereum, a lot of people are avoiding the high cost of transactions on Ethereum by going to Polkadot and Solana and Cardano yep. and all these other things that, that people might have, might have heard. Yeah. Yep. Uh, what's your outlook for those? I just feel like it's an area where I'm out of my pay grade. I don't understand the difference with the coding. I basically get the guys who understand better to take a portfolio of those second generation um, 
protocols or the second level and third level protocols. It's not where I'm spending my time at the moment. You know, I've moved to even crazier town in the NFT space because I think that I can make a coherent case about why that's going to be world changing. So the answer is, are there going to have to be some surviving um, level two and level three protocols to make this whole system work for sure? Do I know which one of them's there? No. Do I want a diversified portfolio of them? Yes. Can I be sure that it's not a race to the bottom? No, I can't. Yeah. Mm. Do okay. I think it's going to be societally productive? Yes, I do. And why? Because you're just going to reduce the frictional cost of finance. And I think finance should be finance and the industries, you know, that are the constellation around finance are better at 3% of GDP than 13 to 18%. I just think we'd be a better society where intellectual capital was spent on trying to make people live better lives, longer lives, healthier lives and stuff like that, rather than trading um, be it cryptocurrency, foreign exchange, or stocks and bonds. So all of this technology, which is currently mind-bending, when you talk about all of these different protocols and the coins and the tokens and the blockchains, if this is going to revolutionize the world and change the way that we buy houses and track goods and ensure that the seafood that we're eating was caught sustainably and figure out the carbon content of produce, if the blockchain is going to be used in all these different ways, is there... Like, is there a future in which all of that happens, but it's co-opted by our existing financial institutions and all of our other institutions, and they basically just steamroll all of the players who are currently independent and utopian? Uh, And, you know, maybe they don't charge all of these extraordinary rents and tolls that they're currently charging us just to live our lives, but maybe they, they just add a half of a percent to everything that's going on so that there's no real comparative advantage for us to go into riskier, more complicated systems, almost like Napster gets superseded by Apple when Apple starts charging us for music downloads and we're willing to pay 99 cents because it all happens in one place and we don't have to be bit-torrenting everything anymore. Is Are you putting your money on a future that is decentralized and independent and utopian or one that gets co-opted by the stuff we live with now? So as I say, I mean, my position for people is basically put 1% on the Rebel Alliance, right? Just everyone thinks, no, 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 all of the force of the empire is going to prevail here, but just put 1% on the idea that the Rebel Alliance wins, right? For those of you who are too old, are too young, that's a Star Wars um, <laughs> reference. Um, so... Do not be sitting there and thinking, and this is where we're going to turn into, to use another old people's reference, the second half of Apocalypse Now, where the world's going to get weird in our conversation if it's not weird enough now when we start to talk about the metaverse. But I think in the world that we live in and occupy at the moment, yeah, then there's every chance that the railroads is the answer, which is, hey, crypto's come and gone, all the coins are nothing more than um evidence of a stupid bubble you look silly for having done whatever you've done and all of the banks are working on blockchain and there's some efficiency there and you can see a whole lot of the fintechs that you know are finding different ways to achieve the same thing ring out efficiencies get sold for a monster price and the world goes on very much as it is yep Mm. so as i say then what we have to do in in the next part of this is move from that 
to a world that doesn't look anything like the world that we live in now. Yeah, And that is the world of what the crazies call the metaverse. Mm-hmm. So this we still with you here or is this new for you too no yes i i have a basic understanding of the the metaverse and but please continue to explain it because it's interesting so for somebody who's 59 years old we are talking absolutely cray cray yeah um and you just for those people who are sort of 50 plus or you know even 40 plus this is just really really hard to imagine yeah um but the argument is that you spend so much time online, be it by gaming or on social media or a whole series of things, that those horrible days you had when you were a kid where you were excluded, bullied, locked out of groups or whatever, yeah, and made to feel absolutely terrible um, is going to be solved by the personality or personalities you occupy online, whether it's in Fortnite or on some variation of a avatar-created social network or things like that, or in your virtual reality world. So for if you think about just the nature of most of the people who are writing the code for the future, yeah, most of them are geeky people. Yeah. And they didn't have the greatest um, psychological experience growing up at school. They weren't the jocks. They weren't the popular kids. They weren't anything. Yeah, And they found their way to gaming or to writing software because they were good at that and they weren't good on the other stuff. Yeah, So they've given a whole, as a result of you know, the psychological bedrock, their psychological bedrock, they've given a whole lot of impetus to gaming and to virtual reality. And what I say to people of my generation and a bit younger is, think about the world now, where we really are, if you think this is too crazy, in that I say we're in the last two scenes of Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion, a movie <laughs> which you right, right remember, where the geeky kid comes back with a, a hundred million bucks on and flying the Augusta to pick up the two hot chicks and take them off. Yeah? And mm-hmm. The metaverse is basically saying we're living in Romy and Michelle's high school reunion forever. And before you think that's rubbish, the kids in school are going to continue to prevail. Remember that we're in a world now where Paris Hilton and Tom Brady decide that the coolest thing they can do is hang out with Vitalik. Yeah. Mm. So the world has gone to the point where people do want to join the cool kids in the metaverse the coolest kids in the real live world want to join the coolest kids in the metaverse so the whole balance of power has completely and utterly changed well yeah and i I mean i (laughs) i think you're framing it in a slightly pejorative uh, way by invoking the return to the, the nerd's return to his own youth to vindicate his younger self when uh, of course, the metaverse will work, I think, to the extent that the geek is able to make it appealing, not just to geeks and geek fuckers, but to everybody. Uh, and I mean, Mark Zuckerberg has managed to create something that everybody finds utility in, regardless of whether they're nerds or not. And my understanding of the promise of a metaverse is that it could be as simple as just some kind of intersection of augmented reality, virtual reality, gaming, shopping, 
that you are immersed in so that mm-hmm. your re- relationship between the physical world and you is even more uh, compromised or abstracted than it already is when you think about the difference between the amount of time that we spend today interfacing with the real world, physical world, versus interfacing with machines and digital devices and sort of imaginary augmented things like a shop, like a digital shopping cart or something like that. If you just take that back 20 years, if you then extrapolate in a, in a sort of exponential way between here and the future and you imagine inhabiting virtual or augmented worlds where you want to be able to have currencies that can buy things and maybe tokens that do things. It's sort of a, it could be a cross between a game and real life. But what does that, what on earth does that tell us about like financially investing in such a thing? But so just, as I said, you've got to think through the fact that these guys who were designing this were trying to find some way to take back a whole lot of economic rents from a different place. We've been talking about the financial system, but they're trying to take control back from um, Google, Netflix, mm. Facebook, etc. And so their argument, best um, found if somebody's interested and hasn't seen it, other than the Balaji um, podcast with whoever Sam Harris or Tim Ferriss is where people I send. But the other place I send people is um, Andreessen Horowitz's website to talk about the creator economy. Mm. And so Mm. we're moving from the financial system and the 15% there to technological change and taking back control of your own data from the internet yourself. There was for a huge amount of time a situation where people signed up to become part of Rotary, part of Elks, part of all sorts of just social clubs, yeah? You obviously signed up to the golf club not just to play golf but to be part of that community, yeah? Yep. And most particularly in Australia, it remains intact with the surf clubs and nippers, yeah? Those pieces of social fabric beyond just what you do as a parent at the, the kids' school club. And you had it previously as well the church yeah yeah so you had all sorts of social signifiers that um were important as far as your role in the community and how you played and your own personal identity yeah all of that went over the last 30 or 40 years yeah people's social um constituency has just disappeared as the social fabrics got torn Mm. And the argument here is that you're going to be able to find common cause with people on the internet by virtue of um, interests and personal identities, yeah? And if you get a social identity that actually attracts people, yeah, and wants them to be part of your world, you're going to be able to capture a huge amount of the economic rents that currently go because you've got... 25,000 Twitter followers or 10,000 Instagram followers and at the moment you essentially get hijacked so Zuckerberg can sell you know the next um, piece of luggage or the next piece of cooking equipment or whatever he says you can do instead of that if you've got a feed that's interesting you'll be able to figure out what your constituencies of people are interested in doing and organize to keep 100% 100% of those economic rents to yourself, yeah? Everyone's if, sort of a mayor of them, of their own town. 
Exactly. And, you know, the fractal nature of, okay, I'm going to be the mayor of my own town. I'm going to be a participant in the town that has shares interest with me. And then it's going to go from the town to the region. Yeah. Mm. So the, the whole creator economy thing, which is how Andreessen Horowitz have described it, is, you know, properly another part of the metaverse. It's not so much just in virtual reality. It's just taking control of your social network back from getting hostage, getting held up by um, the monopolists out there in um, the internet web 2.0 compared to web 3.0, which is what these guys are trying to design. Right. So this brings that, well, you've just sort of uh, brought us back to the original question that I parked at the beginning of the conversation, which was how does crypto extract profit from these big networks like Facebook and Google? And it's by empowering all of us to become a mini Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, I mean, I think more a sort of LinkedIn of yourself is the way that I think about it. Mm. Um, You know, you sit there and try and work out how you can maximize the strength of your social networks and your trust arrangements yeah and therefore you've got to take responsibility for not um behaving badly because your social network is going to ultimately rely on your trustworthiness and that's the argument exactly the same but in a different way about how smart contracts work which is you just reintroduce an element of trust in a world that has very low trust at the moment it's fascinating. I mean, does everyone have the appetite to do that? The question is whether or not people will want to. Yeah, well, I mean, this brings me to the part where I finally, you know, jump the shark here. When I'm watching what's happening in this paid-to-play gaming at the moment, yeah, um, up until then I couldn't give you an end-to-end coherent case about why Taleb's wrong. But if I watch what's going on with Axie Infinity at the moment, I can tell you this thing is unstoppable. Explain Axie Infinity, which is <laughs> the, the latest <laughs> boomlet. Yeah, I mean, it's more than that. Okay, they've solved the problem. So, uh, Well, I we hate, don't have uh, to go into Axie Infinity. I mean, because there's so no, much no, we do. to we, talk we, about. I want to talk about I want to talk about Well, Axie Infinity is the best. Yeah, okay, Axie cool. Infinity is the best, best way into it. But you're going to, I mean, I'm not sure that we haven't left ourselves with three listeners because people <laughs> are interested in Axie my Infinity list, already. are smart. They'll be following the thread. Okay, well, I'm glad about that. I just worry I'm bored them to death. Anyway, <laughs> so from the beginning, that argument about the minimum viable product combined with the early adopting customers, right? You think about the social network, What, why MySpace got run over by Facebook was because they had all the ki- cool kids from Harvard and Stanford linked up to the network first. And having done that, then they could radiate out because of social cachet to all of the other schools and that made, they went straight past MySpace because the cool kids were on Facebook and MySpace got squashed. Yeah. So that was what happened there. But the whole argument, which was, hey, there were a lot of Facebooks out there, but it was getting the cool kids to sign up was really, really important. Yeah. When they were designing crypto in the early days, they said the most tender underbelly of the whole of the capitalist ecosystem outside finance is gaming. Yeah. Computer games where 
everyone can write the code to create a computer game, but you've got to, for these massive multiplayer online games, um, create a community that's strong enough, yeah? And we should be able to use crypto by giving people crypto co- tokens to make that work. And it was the uh, it was one of the early ideas and the use cases for crypto, and it just never got off the ground. And people kept on saying, gaming's coming, gaming's coming. And um, for a whole series of reasons, it just didn't. Um, there was a hype factor, but there wasn't a huge amount of use factor. Then what happened, and I'd suggest people just Google Axie Infinity Philippines being paid during the pandemic to read this stuff because it's absolutely fascinating. So they came up with a what they call a Ronin sidechain, which meant that in Axie, unlike all the other games that were trying to do this, when you got paid in the local currency of the game, you couldn't find some way to actually get it cashed in for something else other than you ended up on Ether. And then, as you say, the transaction field fees killed the value of any transaction. Mm. So they put in a Ether clone inside the game, this thing called a Ronin sidechain, which allowed them to take money out of the game at a fraction of the cost that came before. And that was the thing that made all the difference. It meant that the Philippines players were making five to ten bucks a day um, playing Axie. And because they just were lucky enough to hit an NFT boomlet as well at the same time, there was net new money coming into it that got to, to the point of critical mass. But ultimately, it was the first case where somebody could um, join some part of crypto and earn real money. Now, to most of the people, if not all of the people that are listening to this podcast, five to 10 bucks a day is a ridiculously low amount of money. But if you were trying to make do in the Philippines during one of the most tough lockdowns conceivable with absolutely no unemployment benefits, five to 10 bucks a day, you would Mm. have stabbed your grandmother for it. It's yeah. the difference between eating and not eating. Exactly. So it was a complete and utter lifesaver. So now back to Taleb and the bubble, people say, well, Axie is a bubble. It's an internal network. How can it possibly work? The answer is from a start, you need to realize that gaming, yeah, not gambling, not wagering and betting, gaming is a $200 billion a year industry for 60-year-old people, it's just insane to think that's how much money is spent, you know, upgrading your Fortnite or your World of Warcraft or stuff like that. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. If you think there's a 60% gross margin working around in global gaming, yeah, and some of it's hardware, so it's not a fair number, but 60% gross margin, 30% of the big chunk of that goes to the Apple App Store, right? Mm-hmm. So big chunk of the economic rents is embedded in Apple's $2 trillion market cap, and a big chunk goes back to the game designers. In this particular case, because nobody has to do that because they're on crypto, Apple is just a sideline here, yeah? So yep. it's gone from the whole business system. So a third of the revenue and half of the profits just gets taken out of Apple's ass, yeah? Mm. And then you can just give a huge amount of the value back to the players, Yeah. And my contention is that 
this is the first case, yeah? So $2 trillion of value can get taken by crypto away from existing business structures. Right. And Axie's probably got a market cap of $5 billion at the moment, which is a nutty number, I know, but compared to all the other ones, not ridiculous. And then the second part I'd say is, if you were in Bali and a tennis player, yeah, and your wife or your friends weren't going to play tennis, yeah, with you, and you had three Balinese guys, yeah, who were decent quality tennis players, would you pay them four bucks fifty an hour to play tennis with you? <laughs> sure. Yeah. So for people who like gaming, not tennis, yeah, what's wrong with playing, paying three people four bucks fifty an hour yeah mm. to play a game with you mm. Mm. yeah there are businesses out there at the moment where people pay people ten dollars a day to just fill out surveys yeah? yeah and do capture and stuff like that so there's a whole lot of other industries out there yeah and what i say is ultimately you've got a whole lot of marginalized young males in the west yeah they're going to be attracted. They're attracted to gaming as it sits at the moment. Yeah, to be able to find people to play games with at one dollar to one dollar fifty an hour. Yeah, in some mechanism, that's a real societally and globally economically productive transaction. Yeah, because you're going to it's take yeah. alienated youth in the West. Yeah, and combine it with really really energetic youth in the developing world. Yeah. And that's going to be a societally productive um, marriage. And the so, fact that it costs one buck fifty an hour, yeah, is unbelievable. And so, if are you are you still bullish on Axie Infinity even at a? I don't. Dollar I have no idea cap. about. I have no idea what I'm bullish on is paid to play gaming because right. if I watch, if I took you and showed you how these kids behave in the developing world when you give it when you lend them the axes to go and play the game mm. all of the best parts of capitalism all of the best parts of adam adam smith and none of the frictional costs happen the kids that show enterprise do better earn more yeah mm. and mm. and you're talking 20 or 30 percent youth unemployment you know mid-20s unemployment the people yeah. coming and do this You've got huge amounts of correlation, whilst it's not causation, between gaming skills and coding skills. You've got people who are using this as ed tech, you know, on ramp for that. And the question is going to be, and, and it skews my, I mean, gaming skews male, it just does. Yeah. yeah. So to be able to recruit, you know, what I say is there'll be somewhere between 10 and 50 million people doing this as a full-time job amazing and there will be somewhere between you know 50 million and a billion people doing this part-time some way when you use those bottom billion numbers yeah yeah, yeah. <clears throat> while we just while we're while we're on digital money and things like that and people being paid you mentioned earlier about the kinds of yields that you can get in DeFi. so yeah. you know if you've got a stable coin like a you know that's pegged to the us dollar like usdt yeah. or something you know there are places where you can get 20 percent a year on your us stable coin and when i see that i just hear in my head the old adage that if something looks too good to be true it probably is am i wrong 
Well, I think if you believe growth spreads at 10, yeah, I think that you can see, I think anything in the mid 20s and 30s has an element of um, Ponzi about it, yeah. But I do think that there are reasons why you can earn mid mid teens out of mid to high teens out of DeFi, yeah. Um, at the moment, and it, but in terms of is it is not riskless, yeah. So What's we the risk? do the risk is that the protocol the pegs break on the stable coins, so there's that risk. There's what I call peg risk. And the second one is this protocol risk. So we had um, one of our protocols hacked by somebody, I can't remember which particular one, where they emptied a big dollar reserve account or something like that, and suddenly 5% of the value of the pool just got drained out by a hack attack. Right, Yeah. Right. So there are two levels of risk. Now, the... The whole peg risk, yeah, which is the claim which is every dollar of US dollar stable is um, supported by a dollar of US dollars in some of these like Tether and stuff like mm. that and is it true or isn't it? I think that is still to be tested. When you had the Bitcoin bear market, the pegs all held. But I can't help but feel that in some gigantic pylon at mm. some stage, that's going to get tested again. Surely, yeah? surely. And just to clarify what you're talking about there, that you know, if, if I run a conventional bank, then I can't take money from people and lend money out without also having a certain amount of cash reserves and a certain amount of assets so that if I go bust, I, well, so that I'm, I'm not going to go bust very easily. And the point is that those rules don't apply in crypto yet. And so if, I, you know, this USDT, this thing that is pegged to the US that says, well, it's just one for one, that's all very well. But what if everybody who owns a one of these coins tries to redeem it for a dollar all at once? And it's like a run on a bank, but there are none of the rules that prevent runs on banks from collapsing the bank. And even then, that, that those rules aren't perfect, even in the real world, as we saw during the financial crisis. So the question of whether or not one of these coins that is supposedly pegged to a dollar actually is pegged to a dollar, and whether you can, quote unquote, take that to the bank, is up in the air. I mean, Mark, this brings us to the sort of question of the safety of the whole system. Because I don't, I mean, I have, as you can tell, I'm not a, a crypto uh, genius. I mean, I've dabbled a little bit and I, I still don't quite understand how you're supposed to keep your assets safe. Because like if they're earning, I mean, yes, so there are like wallets that, you know, like hard, cold wallets that people can use, like little USB dongles that you can keep your crypto on. But if you're going to be earning a yield on the crypto, then it's not in a wallet, it's out on an exchange somewhere. If you want to have a sell order to take profits on a crypto, then it's going to be sitting in an exchange. And yet everybody says exchanges are are insecure, you shouldn't leave your assets there. I still don't quite understand the sort of risk profile of the whole thing. If you just want to buy a whole bunch of Bitcoin and then throw it in a drawer, that's fine, I get that. But if you want to do anything more than that, aren't you just sitting on risky exchanges? And that's where... it the whole system just blows my head off in that if you want to do that and you're a sophisticated investor, you can go and get somebody to take care of all of that and pay them yeah, yeah. Um, to go and do that. If you're an individual and you say, what should I do? My mate has said I should buy this coin or stake it on this protocol. 
no registered financial advisor at the moment can touch you. Yeah. Mm. So you've got this absolutely horrendous adverse selection problem going on in that we know there's a ton of scuzz buckets out there. Yeah. We know that the sophisticated people have got the ability to go and avail themselves of the people who can answer all those questions and pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. But the people who say, oh, I've got a little bit to invest in crypto are completely and utterly friendless in terms of getting any advice about what is an insanely complicated area to navigate. And like I said to you, I can't possibly tell you between Solana and Polkadot and Hedera which one is which, yeah? And I'd regard myself as having a pretty good understanding of crypto, but I've just had to park a whole lot of um, the evolving ecosystem and leave it to others to figure it out. So, as I say, I've studied financial markets and investing my whole life. I'm reduced to a tiny corner of it in this pay-to-play um, gaming world. And because I can understand how that does, I can see that it's speaking to the internals in the human condition. But I don't know what to say, Josh, other than what I've said publicly and often, which is, the regulators are regulating to continue their career. They are not regulating to deal with a very, very fast-evolving global Rorschach test for the next generation of technology. And I just plead with people who genuinely care about protecting the most vulnerable to, as quick as you possibly can, come up with something that's a better way to handle this. And from an Australian point of view, whichever country decides to do that is just going to attract so much investment and so much human intellectual capital. It will be a great loss for Australia that we haven't done it. And I think mm. in America, it'll be a great loss for the states who don't embrace it as well. You've set up a digital asset fund uh, mm. for investors. What is it? So we've got essentially two plus I've got this involvement with another one. So one is something that you would call in a super fund a sort of balance fund. So we've got a, a balance of Bitcoin because my partners like Bitcoin more than I do, Ether because we all agree Ether is going to be important, some stable coins that we've got some algorithms to stake um, and therefore earn returns on. And we stake Bitcoin and Ether as well. And then a portfolio of the second tier um, bigger cap um, protocols and mm. then we have you know some small allocation to the really speculative what are called shit coins yeah <laughs> that so it's a balanced portfolio and we have 30 percent in the stables to to take the sting out of the volatility because people just hate seeing things of go course. up and down like that and then we have just a straight up deposit account where it's it's staking and nothing but on the stables <clears throat> because I looked at the protocol risk and stuff like that and said mid to high teens with the bots we've got with the conservative guys we've got running plus you can earn you know a good 10% just because it's such a volatile market in true traditional arbitrage you can earn you know 10% and trading that you can improve your overall return so we have one which is a balance fund, then we have one that is nothing more than staking US dollar 
stable coins to try and earn a 15 to 19% return. And then the third thing we have is a partnership with a guy called Ian Love, who was the earliest guy with a crypto fund in Australia. And he runs what I'd call a sort of Ethereum maximalist fund by predisposition, but a, a portfolio of coins, including Bitcoin, by reality, because you just can't be all in on Ether in the Australian funds management environment. Mm, mm. And what? then we backed a pay-to-play startup um, or created one ourselves just because the people that we were in business with and and me all had a background in workforce management and training. And so we understood that area um, pretty well. Where do you stick your stable coins to get 15 to 19%? Uh, there's a five or six protocols I'd need to ask Dimitri and Andy. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, look, I'm mindful of your time. I've mentioned earlier in our conversation about how blockchains might be used for non-financial things like tracking consumption and waste and carbon credits and so on. Can you give us a, a sense of how that would work? So my partner in one of the training businesses that sort of got rolled into this, where we started a um, coding school for blockchain up in Papua New Guinea, he, we came together because um, he was writing code for the United Nations to track pigs in the central highlands of New Guinea. Huh. Yeah, that was how we started. Now, I've tried to do it for honey in Ethiopia and other places. We've got a sort of contract pending with the UN to keep on doing more stuff in terms of um, tracking goods with blockchain up there if when the pandemic finishes up there, which is obviously happening far more slowly than it is in Australia. Um, so I like that space, but the problem is you've still got a sort of garbage in, garbage out problem, mm. yeah, in that, yeah, you can make the contract tracing work just fine on the blockchain. You can find other ways to do it, but it doesn't change the fact that you can tamper at source, yeah, and you can probably tamper at the end in ways that, that don't work. So I love the promise, but I'd have to tell you, Josh, um, as somebody who is in partnership with somebody who has been in it right at the beginning, it's still a gunner part of this ecosystem. Right, right. So, Mark, lastly, what do you say to the to the person who's leaving high school who can afford to put aside 100 bucks a week or 100 bucks a month into a long-term investment that they don't want to touch for... 10 years or 20 years and uh you know in a past generation they might have put it into an exchange traded fund or uh or something that they knew was going to be a good long-term investment and now they're so for a kid just stop right yeah so my answer is get off zero put a hundred bucks in it just to know how to open an account and stuff like that but this is about your life not your money yeah so what i say to my kids and i can't get them to understand yeah (laughs) Yeah. is um this is a bus you're either going to be on or you're going to get hit by Mm. yeah and it's far more about your career and about the creator economy than it is about your savings yeah so dollar cost averaging put some money in it it's fine i still think the coins are less than the career Right. But if you're looking at your savings, do you put them in an ETF or do you put them in coins? 
I think you I think you do one percent in this at the moment is yeah. my answer. Yeah. I don't it's just it's still really speculative and stuff. Whereas I think you put one percent of your savings and ten percent of your energy. Yeah, I see. I see. Mark, it's terrific to talk to you. Thanks for giving us your time just before you. Are you off to Dubai tomorrow, did you say? Uh, no, I'm on the way. I've got to go to the US to deal with one of my med tech companies going right. public. So that's the first thing. But okay. thank you very much for being patient with me, Josh. I no, know it's it was great. Sort of flailed around. It's right. fascinating stuff. Thank you. I appreciate it. Great. Thanks.